Hi, good evening and welcome here tonight to 5 by 15 with our guest from New York, Patrick Radden Keefe, who's the author of the quite astonishing book, The Empire of Pain. Um, he's the worthy winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize uh, last year and the Bailey Gifford's strapline is all the best stories are true. And I have to tell you, this is one of the best stories and every word is true. I haven't stayed up till two in the morning finishing a book because I read it like a thriller and a thriller it is with, my God, does it pack a punch. Patrick's an amazing writer. He works for the New Yorker and as well as being the author of an extraordinary book about the troubles called Say Nothing, which is being turned into a Netflix adaptation. I'm not sure if it's Netflix, Patrick. Um, as well as the amazing podcast called Winds of Change, which if you hadn't had a chance to listen to it, do, it's a real treat. It's another absolutely extraordinary and true story. Um, the format is the same as usual. Patrick and I will talk for 40, 45 minutes, and then please come in and put your questions in the Q&A. And books are available from Newham Books. He'll be happy to whisk you a copy. His book is out in paperback now. It was brought out quite quickly. There have been a few developments since the hardback for any of you who've not caught up with the paperback and it is a great read and so please put your questions in the chat and uh, i'd like to say a very very big welcome to patrick who's joining us from brooklyn i believe not new york from brooklyn so patrick welcome it's great to see you oh it's great to see you again rosie thank you and thanks for having me well let's start with some new revelations because the the subject at the moment especially with the war in ukraine and our uh, Russian oligarchs and the whole question of who's paying for the arts and you know blood money and can you can you ever clean money up the British Museum have finally decided to remove the Sacklers from their their naming yeah I mean this was very recent news just last week uh, the announcement that um, that the British Museum where the the Sackler name has been on the walls for decades uh, that they're going to start taking the name down um, and it's it's been interesting because I, I think that the you know the Sacklers are this family one of the wealthiest families in the United States but they also have a big presence in London and have uh, for a long time and their philanthropy is in some ways even more conspicuous in London than it is here. I mean, at the National Gallery and the British Museum and the Tate and on and on and on. Uh, and so it's been interesting when you think about the idea that their, you know, much of their fortune was derived from this drug that was associated with the opioid crisis. The impacts of the opioid crisis have been more profoundly felt here in the US. And so I think for some time they were able to kind of skate in the UK. Mm. Um, and have it not catch up with them. But this news from the British Museum some, seems to suggest that, uh, that the, the kind of tainted uh, quality of their money um, is becoming a problem there as well. Yes, I hadn't quite seen it like that, that our opioid crisis, while it exists, has not been on the scale of what's happened in the US. So the Empire of Pain is the story of one family, the Sackler family, and about three brothers in particular, about their arrival in New York and how they made their way, ending up really very quickly within a couple of generations, dominating this extraordinary trade in legal, legal opioids. Can you, why did you choose to go right back to the beginning of the childhood of Arthur and the arrival in America? 
Well, I had seen um, I had seen this project from the from the start as really not so much a, a story of the opioid crisis uh, per se, but more as a family saga. Um, I, you know, there are a number of very good books about the opioid crisis already that are sort of full spectrum accounts of the crisis. Um, but the part that always interested me was the idea that there were a number of bad pharmaceutical companies that that manufactured opioids um, and made exaggerated claims in their marketing, suggesting that these drugs were not addictive. But it was really Purdue Pharma, this one company, that led the charge. They were sort of the tip of the spear back in the 1990s with this drug OxyContin, which is really how the opioid crisis began. And when I learned that this company was a privately held company owned by this family, that was actually when, when I really became intrigued and, th and thought, oh, there's something really interesting here. And as I delved into it, what I learned is that the first generation of the family, those three brothers, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond, um, who came of age in the 1940s and 50s and were all doctors but also businessmen, they had this, this rich kind of prehistory which didn't feel... Um, it didn't feel incidental to the story of OxyContin and the opioid crisis. It felt like a kind of uh, a, a sort of a, a, a tale that you have to tell in order to understand what their family would do later. And so really it's a story that starts with different drugs, drugs like Valium, which Arthur Sackler uh, had the contract to market. And with the marketing of drugs in that kind of post-World War II era when the family first, um, uh, first really sort of built its, its initial fortune. So going back to that initial time, and they their their parents came over and were immigrants in New York. And Arthur, who was the eldest brother, um, how did he end up getting into it? Because the story of Purdue Pharma and OxyContin is also not just a story of addiction, but it's also a story of incredibly clever marketing, isn't it? And Arthur learned that trade very early. Can you can you tell us what he did and how he, you know, you just mentioned he ended up marketing Valium. How did he get into the whole idea of advertising drugs? Yeah, I mean, Arthur, I think uh, it's funny as a nonfiction writer, you know, the stories you tell are really only as good as what you're able to find when you when you go out and turn over rocks and um, and and it's there's a there's a quality of, of found art to this kind of work and occasionally you're you luck into the story of a, a character a real person um but who has the dimensions and the complexity of a character in a novel and arthur Sackler is really one of those figures so he grew up poor with immigrant parents as you said he was the oldest of the three brothers he grows up against the backdrop of the great depression and so as a very young boy he's working in his parents shop and then as soon as he's old enough he's out finding jobs in any way he can and kind of hustling to support the family at age 13 14 and in high school he becomes the editor of the student newspapers but then he's really interested in advertising and he becomes the advertising manager for the student publications. He goes to this vast public high school in uh, Brooklyn, um, which was a, uh, a very good high school. In fact, it was a kind of a, a sort of engine of upward mobility for a whole generation of young immigrants. And so there are something like 6,000 or 8,000 students at the school. And so as, as advertising manager for the newspaper, of course, he's got this huge market and he can help market real products because there are all these kids out there. And so the, there are these hilarious stories about them selling ads to Chesterfield cigarettes and things like that. Um, 
there was a uh, there was a local uh, chain of secretarial schools that figured out that they wanted to advertise to the students, and and Arthur. Um, came up with the idea of distributing rulers for free, which would have the name of the secretarial school on the back. And this was such a successful ploy that they decided to hire him um, as a teenager. He was a high school student to be their head of marketing. And so he was able to do that, to just kind of multitask. And he found he was very good at selling things to people. And he pays his way through medical school uh, by working on the side in as a copywriter for a pharmaceutical company. And then... Once he comes out, he's a, he's a practicing physician, he's a psychiatrist, and he's doing medical research, but he also continued with medical advertising. And it was this very particular moment, which is just after World War II, mm-hmm. so you've had the introduction of penicillin. There's this sense of uh, kind of euphoric promise. This is really the birth of big pharma, when you get all of these companies that start to develop these new branded drugs. And they need to distinguish them and, and, and persuade consumers and physicians uh, to start prescribing them and using them. And that's where Arthur comes in. And so he sort of, he becomes kind of this, almost like a sort of Don Draper figure of medical advertising in the 1940s and 50s and joins a medical advertising firm and then takes it over. And one of their big clients was Roche. And Roche at that time was rolling out these, what were called minor tranquilizers, first Librium and then Valium. And Arthur was the person who was in charge of marketing those drugs. And Librium and then Valium became each in their turn, the most successful drug in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. And so he got fantastically rich by marketing these drugs. But what was so fascinating about those two drugs was that Librium was marketed, wasn't it, as a much more uh, for someone who had real mental problems. And then Valium, that was essentially the same kind of drug, in order to sell it, they had to market it in a different way. Yeah, you had these the sort of product differentiation thing where they, they realized that, you know, and, and pharma companies do this today as well, where they see something that works and then they think, well, how can we develop something that's just a little different? It's different enough that we can get a patent for it. Mm-hmm and then market it for something else, uh, for some other you know, ailment um, that, that uh, you might use it for. And so they, they did this with Librium and Valium. And what's hilarious is that I went back and you, you can look at the advertising that they ran in those days, most of it in medical journals, but you'd get these huge ads for Librium on one page, and then on the next page, these huge ads for Valium. And it becomes very difficult to distinguish, you know, really, what's the difference between the, the anxiety that you're marketing it for in one context and the psychic tension that you're marketing it for in another. Um, it becomes a little bit of a semantic shell game, I think. So how did he move from that to, uh, from being an ad salesman to being someone who actually started making drugs? So this is very much a a part of the family story is that Arthur had these two younger brothers, Mortimer and Raymond, and they were very much in his shadow. He was almost like a a kind of paterfamilias from a quite young age, more like another parent than he was like an older sibling. And he would get all these jobs and he would hand the jobs on to them. So Mortimer and Raymond, each in their turn, became advertising manager of the student newspaper. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they sort of followed him through high school. they didn't go to medical school in the U.S. Uh, they weren't able to because of Jewish quotas in U.S. medical schools at the time. So they actually went to Glasgow for mm-hmm. medical school, uh, both of them. 
and came back and the three of them were working as doctors and Arthur did this thing that was became a very typical pattern in his life which is in 1952 he bought them a pharmaceutical company this company that at the time was called Purdue Frederick it was a little sort of humdrum company based in Greenwich Village and he gave it to them and the idea is that he would be effectively a silent partner he would have a one-third stake in the company but he gave it to his brothers to run and there was a long history of him kind of bringing them on to things and so it was that company that started uh, primarily kind of licensing and then selling its own drugs mostly over-the-counter drugs um, you know, they had a laxative they had an earwax remover they had a, a disinfectant scrub it was pretty unglamorous stuff uh, but it became quite profitable and then eventually they started actually developing their own drugs um, in the 1970s and 80s. So when you say they, who was the chemist among them who, who actually sat down? And none, said... none of them were chemists. Um, and in fact, they when they really started doing uh, the, the, the work that would put them on the map, it was um, through a subsidiary, Knapp Pharmaceuticals, which is actually based in Cambridge in England, um, which they owned, and there was uh, research done at Knapp, which developed these drugs. So, so these guys were very much kind of businessmen uh, sitting atop the uh, the empire. Very, very canny, clever people, but not chemists by any stretch. But they were also doctors, and I, I find it very striking when you, you read your book the thought that these all, were all people who'd taken the Hippocratic oath to uh, you know, protect life and look after people and try to make them better. And yet they did so many incredibly ter terrible things. So where did the idea of a, uh, an opioid like Oxycontin or a, you know, a painkiller, where did that begin and how did that start to develop for them? I mean, so I'll tell you, but first let me just pick up on one thing you said, because I think it's important. I mean, about the Hippocratic Oath, um, I think in some ways it's a story about self-delusion as much as it is about anything else. And I think that the idea, the Sackler brothers were raised to think of doctors as like priests or like rabbis, morally unimpeachable people mm -hmm. who who answered only to the dictates of appropriate um, clinical care for the patient and you know would never suffer from a conflict of interest, for instance. And that was this kind of... Um, they held doctors in very, very high esteem. And that was a thing that I think Arthur Sackler in particular kind of manipulated because he would say, oh, you know, it's not even really medical advertising I do because you could never influence a physician. A physician would never be influenced by something like advertising. It's really just medical education. Right. Um, and I, I think that it tends to be the case, uh, and I would say that the same is, is true of, uh, of actual priests, um, that if you have a, a vocation that has this aura of ethical unimpeachability, that way <laughs> terrible moral hazard lies, right? That, that it's, it's sort of not a, it's not a, um, you know, it's, it's more than, a, than an oddity that these people were convinced of their own virtue and sort of held themselves out to be these very virtuous people and then did these things that were not virtuous at all. Um, were the very opposite. Uh, I think in some ways that was a shield for them that allowed them to carry on the way they did for a long time. But, but to answer your question, the, um, 
In the 1980s in particular, there was a the beginnings of a reconsideration of the way we treat pain mm-hmm. and a sense that uh, for a long time, doctors had not taken pain seriously. They thought of it really just as a symptom of, of other problems and, and the patients would be forced to kind of grin and bear it. And there were a lot of doctors who said, uh, this is wrong. Actually, we need to take this more seriously. We need to study pain, the causes of pain, the treatment of pain. And in particular, they latched on to the idea that uh, there was a real reluctance to prescribe opioids. So that would be drugs derived from the opium poppy, um, which can be miraculous at, at curing pain uh, or relieving it um, in a, in a, on a short-term basis, um, but have historically been, been linked to addiction and dependence. So there was this sense that you know, doctors have known for a long, long time that you had these two attributes with the opioids, that they can have this amazing kind of therapeutic value, relieving pain, but also can be quite addictive. And this, this new generation of doctors said that that had led to um, a kind of prudish hysteria about opioids mm-hmm. um, and the undertreatment of pain. And as that reconsideration is happening in the medical establishment, Purdue develops uh, its first painkiller, which was a morphine-based drug uh, called MS Contin. And the idea was it was a, a, a big morphine pill with a, a, a seal on the pill, a seal on the capsule, so that if you swallowed it, it would filter into your bloodstream over hours, almost the way you would, you would with an IV drip, right? That it would sort of slowly drip, uh, uh, distribute into your, into your system. Um, and that was a very successful drug. And at a certain point, the patent was running out on that. And so they needed to replace it. And that was really the birth of OxyContin, was the fear that having had all this profitability with MS Contin, they would, they would be swamped by generic competition. And so they needed to find something new and proprietary in that same pain relief space. And so that was the moment when they started their enormous advertising campaign because quite a, a lot of your book and some of the most riveting parts are about the sales team that Purdue Pharma assembled to to go out and conquer the doctors of America and the sales team themselves became extremely rich as well so there was a big Purdue family and again it was Arthur's brilliance with advertising yeah, I mean, that's, that's quite right, and it's part of the reason I told Arthur's story. So Arthur dies in 1987. He dies before OxyContin is introduced in 1996. But, but my contention in the book would be that he creates the toolbox that mm-hmm. is used to sell OxyContin. Arthur had realized that the way to make a drug a blockbuster is not so much to reach the consumer, but to reach the physician who writes the prescriptions. And he developed a whole vocabulary... Um, and modus operandi for kind of seducing physicians in a, in a very, uh, you know, in a very kind of upright seeming clinical way, um, persuading physicians that they should prescribe your drug. And that's what you see with OxyContin. So OxyContin is a much stronger drug than MS-Contin, that earlier drug. But the, the family, the Sacklers and their company, Purdue, make this big pivot, which is that MS-Contin had primarily been for cancer pain. Um, it had been reserved for people in end-of-life care situations, for people dealing with really severe pain. And they realized that it had been a great success, but there's only so many people who have cancer. And what they really wanted was a much bigger market of people who suffer from moderate pain. So 
of back pain, you know, on the job injury, sports injury, fibromyalgia, you can go on and on, um, that this was a much, much bigger market of tens of millions of people, and they really wanted to reach that market. And so they did this amazing pivot where they said, what if we marketed this drug not as a kind of nuclear solution that you keep on the top shelf, but as the first thing that a physician would reach for for a patient in pain, even though it's actually much more powerful than MS content. And they realized that the, the barrier to doing that was that there were these fears about the addictive nature of these drugs. And so the claim that they made was that actually it wasn't addictive, that those fears were overblown, that OxyContin was a special drug that kind of cracked it. You know, I, I mentioned how opioids for thousands of years, people had known they had the, this benefit, but also this risk. And the, the contention with OxyContin was, no, we cracked it. We hacked it. We figured out a way to disentangle those two essential properties of this class of drugs. And so you can get all the benefit of pain relief and none of the dangers. Um, and they got an army of these sales representatives to go out <coughs> and make the case uh, to doctors. And they had this... Um, very official looking medical literature, a lot of which turned out to be pretty bogus in retrospect. And those sales reps were heavily incentivized to get doctors to prescribe and to get them to prescribe in large doses over long periods of time. And the, the more, it wasn't just the, the number of prescriptions, it was actually the, the kind of tonnage of the drug itself, right? That you would get for a prescription for 80 milligram Oxycontin, there would be more of a bonus for the sales rep than there would be for a prescription with for 20 milligrams of OxyContin. Um, and so they went out and, you know, in the words of, of one of the Purdue officials, they went out to sell, 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 and that's what they did. And there were two, several other things going on at this point. I mean, one is that it was passing across the generations, wasn't it? As you say, Arthur died and Richard Sackler became the, what one says, the, the, the driving force. And also the relationship with the FDA, with the Food and Drug Administration in the States. Um, we, we have a similar thing here in Britain, but I mean, if you could just explain again how that worked, because their uh, cooperation, if that's the right word, was essential to the fact that they were able to sell this stuff in such giant quantities. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it's funny, I, prior to writing this book, I had done a lot of writing on, on illegal drugs. Um, Mexican drug cartels and uh, the, the street drug trade. And the Sacklers, I think, would, would, would and have said in their own defense, um, well, we never did anything illegal. We, everything we did was blessed by the Food and Drug Administration. So, you know, we are different from those from Chapo Guzman because we operate on this side of the law. And I think how much stock you're prepared to put in that kind of evasion depends a bit on how much stock you're prepared to put in the Food and Drug Administration. Um, so yes, there is this federal agency that has to uh, approve of the sale of drugs uh, to American consumers, but also approve of the marketing claims that mm. are made of those for those drugs. And obviously the FDA has been much in the news over the last couple of years because of the vaccines. Um, but the FDA is made up of humans, and humans can be compromised in, in ways large and small. And so there's a story I tell in the book about uh, how in the, in the 1950s, Pfizer, which is a client of Arthur Sackler's, bribed an FDA official um, 
In the case of OxyContin, there was a guy named Curtis Wright, whose story I tell in the book, who was the main official at the FDA, whose job it was to decide whether or not OxyContin could be sold uh, to U.S. consumers and also sign off on some of those marketing claims about how it was, you know, it was considered safer than other drugs and so forth that ended up getting approved. And the drug sailed through that process in record time. And then Curtis Wright decided he might be ready to leave the government. And a little over a year later, he ends up working at Purdue Pharma for three times his government salary. Um, so, you know, when the Sacklers say, oh, but the FDA blessed everything we did, so surely it must be okay. Um, I think it's, it's largely a matter of how much integrity you think the FDA as an institution and these individuals who, who worked at the agency have. So how much money were they starting to make? I mean, how did the money move up the chain? So presumably a lot of the prescriptions for the OxyContin were paid for by private insurance and Medicare and all of that. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it becomes a fantastically successful drug uh, right out of the gate. Um, profits are doubling every year. Um, the, it, it gets to a point where um, I, I found an, one of these internal emails I have where a guy, I think at the time he was maybe the director of marketing. Um, he said at this point, the only barrier to us continuing to grow is just our ability to supply the demand. Literally, we cannot make pills fast enough to meet demand. Uh, within a few years, they're making, it's a billion dollar drug. Um, it eclipsed Viagra, which was sort of the, the blockbuster drug of the day. Um, I, the, the figure as of today is that since it was introduced in 1996, OxyContin has generated some $35 billion in revenue. Um, and this is a company that's wholly owned by the Sackler family. And as you said, at this point, really run by Richard Sackler, who is Arthur Sackler's nephew, um, son of Raymond Sackler, who was one of the original three brothers. And so it, it became, not just for the Sacklers, but everybody working at the company, it was, this was a, a fantastically lucrative proposition. So when did the first indications get to Richard Sackler that all was not happy on the ground? Well, this, I wish I knew the answer to this, Rosie. Um, I, I think there are probably a, a fair number of <laughs> prosecutors uh, out there who wish they knew the answer to that question. Um, I was able to uh, reconstruct a lot of this paper trail. Um, I got access to tens of thousands of internal documents um, from the company and um, was able to start sort of piecing together some of this paper trail. But it's important to remember that this was also a company that um, was pretty careful about what was committed to, to paper. There's a guy who was the general counsel for years, a real kind of conciliary to the Sackler family, a guy named Howard Udell, who was forever telling people, you know, don't write that down. Um, and so there isn't that I could find, um, you know, an email to Richard Sackler early, early on saying, hey, here's what's going on. What we do know is almost immediately it emerged that the claims that the company was making about the drug, that it wasn't addictive, people were, you know, it couldn't really be abused, people grew, got addicted less than 1% of the time, turned out not to be true, that people are developing problems with the drug. Sometimes these are people who buy the drug on the street. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's people who are prescribed the drug by a doctor and take it exactly as they were ordered to do, who just find that there's a kind of physiological undertow 
and that they, they're no longer in control of their consumption of the drug. Uh, and people start ODing and they start dying. Kids start dying. And the interesting thing about Purdue is that they have that sales force that I mentioned. They have this army of people who are out there in the communities all across the country. And those people are meeting with doctors and meeting with pharmacists. And so they're sort of a canary in the coal mine, right? Like there's an early warning system. And so you start getting stories, um, you know, certainly by drugs introduced in 96. By 97, 98, there were people at Purdue we've been able to establish who knew that there was a big problem. Knowing the way the Sacklers managed this company, I think that if anybody knew at the company, they probably knew. But it's hard to it's hard to demonstrate exactly what they knew and when they knew it. Um, but by the late '90s, certainly by '99, 2000, uh, the family is very much on notice. And by 2001, the problem has assumed proportions where the company kind of couldn't deny it anymore. Um, where they're being hauled, you know, company executives are being hauled before Congress and. Um, and asked to explain how it is that their product is killing people. It is quite extraordinary when you when you say that, you know, that's over 20 years ago, and yet the Sacklers continued to take, I mean, in fact, increasing amounts of money out of Purdue up until a couple of years ago. Um, at that time, when did they really hit the gas pedal about becoming patrons of the art, about whitewashing or laundering their money? Uh, and, and was that, do you think that that was conscious that they were, uh, or at what point did they become conscious that their money was dirty and they could make it clean by buying temples in the Met, et cetera? Yeah. So I, I have a I have a slightly different take on this, which is that the, I think that from the outside, um, certainly when people see stories saying that the Metropolitan Museum of Art has taken the Sacro name down or that the British Museum or the, or the Louvre are doing the same, there is a kind of rhetoric of reputation washing in a sense that they knew they were doing this bad thing and so they put their name up and that um, uh, is a way of kind of obviating um, uh, the, the bad press or the moral stench. Um, but I think it's a little more complicated than that with the Sacklers. And part of the reason for that is that this whole mania for naming, um, it goes back to the 1950s. It starts really early. And there's a story I tell in the book about Isaac Sackler, the original patriarch, the mm -hmm. father of the three brothers in the Great Depression. He loses everything, and he's unable to pay for his kids' education. And he says to them, with, with some, summoning some pride, he says, but I haven't given you nothing. I've actually given you the most important thing that a parent can give a child. I've given you a good name. And if you lose a fortune, you can always earn another. But if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. And he tells them this. Uh, you know, in the in the late twenties, early thirties, um, and uh, and they kind of grow up with that idea in their minds that the name standing for integrity, almost as a brand, mm -hmm. is this thing that you want to kind of emblazon on prestigious spaces around the world. And so, it starts really early. It starts in the fifties, um, and I don't think it was a situation in which they felt as though there was. Um, some moral transgression that they needed to expiate. Um, I, to be honest with you, I don't think the Sacklers see it that way today. Uh, but I, but I do think that there was a bit of a, uh, there was a bit of a shell game they were playing, in the sense that, um, I mean, take Arthur. Arthur would prepare these biographies of himself, um, 
which went into great detail about all of his philanthropic giving and his art collections and, and, you know, often would talk about what a distinguished career he had in high school and the different newspapers he edited and all this stuff and wouldn't mention that he owned a pharmaceutical marketing firm and did all the marketing for Valium and this was where he made all his money. There was a sort of selectiveness to the way in which they told their story, which I don't think it was necessarily a case of, of thinking that they had done something bad, but, but knowing that commerce is a bit grubby. You know, and, and wanting to be known first and foremost as patrons of the arts and, and connoisseurs. So the big patron of the art stuff was uh, Arthur bringing the temple to the Met, was the first one, wasn't it? A temple from the Nile that was going to be flooded by the Aswan Dam. Is that is my memory right? That's exactly right. So they, they had been giving already at that point to Columbia, but the big sort of showy move was in the 60s to say we will give, um, I think it was $3 million was what they committed at the time, paid out over 20 years um, to the Met in order to house this Egyptian temple. And if, any, if anybody watching has been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art on the Upper East Side in New York, there is this magnificent space, um, this very airy wing, which is known as the Sackler Wing, where they reconstituted this temple. I should say it was known until a few months ago as the Sackler Wing. And that was the that was the start of it, but then obviously... Mortimer Sackler, the second brother, ends up, his third wife is English, mm -hmm. and they settle uh, in Belgravia and, um, and give very, very generously uh, in the UK. And so um, really on both sides of the Atlantic, the family is just, there's a kind of, somebody who described it as an edifice complex, um, <laughs> you know, this, uh, this tendency to uh, plaster the name on buildings anywhere they can. Yes, well, you have a, a funny story as well of when you were shortlisted for the FT Book of the Year and you found yourself going to the awards dinner in the Sackler Wing at the National Gallery and that the dinner was put on by McKinsey, who right. come in for quite a bruising throughout uh, the Empire of Pain. Yeah, <laughs> it was really the... Uh... Uh, the the irony is multiply. It was, I, I, had a, I had a hard time keeping it all in my head. So there was a, um, I mean, the, the great irony as well in your book is that the, the Sacklers as a family, they, they made their, their quote, their good reputation through sponsoring the arts. But at the end of the day, it was the arts that brought them down, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. And this is part of what's, what's I think, quite intriguing about this story is, and, and again, it's, 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 a, it's a sense in which the caricature of the story, which is that, oh, it was all reputation laundering, misses the mark a little bit because in a strange way, it was precisely their desire to slap the family name on all these art museums that ended up making them a target, you know, in the way that we're not, we're not here talking about the chairman of the board of Mallinckrodt or, um, mm -hmm or Johnson and Johnson, you know, that there's a kind of level of anonymity that the, the corporate, um, the sort of gray corporate types at other very guilty pharmaceutical companies enjoy. Um, whereas the Sacklers were sort of sitting ducks at a certain point. I mean, I, listen, I, I think it worked for a long time in the sense that when I started looking into this story um, in 2016, it was no secret that Purdue Pharma had played this key role in the opioid crisis. The company had pled guilty 
to federal criminal charges. And it was no secret that the Sacklers owned the company or that the Sacklers were these big philanthropists. It's just that nobody was sort of putting the pieces together. Nobody was asking the family questions. It was very comfortable for them to kind of swan around getting thanked and congratulated at every turn. Um, and so clearly for a long time, they, they did manage to, to get away with it. Um, but eventually what happened is that the, I think the real turning point was this woman, Nan Golden, who I talk about in the book, who is a, a, a photographer, an artist, one of the most important living American photographers, uh, who became addicted to OxyContin. And when she came out, she read, she read, I originally wrote an article in the New Yorker about the Sacklers that came out in 2017 and she read it. And then she, we had a kind of funny meeting. We met in New York. Somebody from her studio asked me to meet with her. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really know what it was about, but I, we, I went and we met. She told me she'd been addicted to OxyContin and she said, I'm going to start a movement and we're going to get their names taken down from all these museums. And I thought it, it all sounded a bit retro. You know, it just, it, to me, it just seemed very, um, there was a kind of brand of activism that she was describing that seemed like a bit of a throwback to me. Um, but sure enough, she went out and started doing these big protests um, at the Met, at the, uh, at the Guggenheim, at the V&A in London. <laughs> and... Uh, she had this incredible credibility because she was an artist. She was important in the world that they resided in, but she also had been addicted to their drug. And I, I think that that campaign has turned out to be uh, tremendously successful, more so certainly than I, um, than I ever would have, would have thought possible. Yeah, it's very, very good, all the, all the parts of your book about Nan Golding's campaign. But you yourself did I mean, quite phenomenal research because you say often, you know, they didn't leave paper trails. They had a philosophy of not writing things down. Was it intimidating? Did you ever feel threatened? No, I mean, well, <laughs> um, it's easy to feel threatened when, when they keep threatening you. Um, I, you know, the, the, the family did not want me to write the book. Uh, they didn't cooperate with the book. They hired a very nettlesome um, attorney who specializes in, uh, this is a type who's very familiar in, in, to the London press, um, mm. who specializes in killing stories before they can even be written. Um, and that guy, uh, became, we, we developed, a, an intense epistolary relationship, um, over the course of a couple of years. So there were threats aplenty. Um, but you know, w w without sounding cavalier, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm careful about the work that I do, and I believe the truth is important, and I believe the truth is a is generally a good defense, um, even in court. And so I had some confidence on that basis. Um, I had some confidence on the basis that I've, these are not the first mm -hmm. uh, vexatious billionaires that I've written about. So I've, I've sort of it's not my first rodeo when it comes to that kind of um, uh, that bag of tricks that they deploy. Um, and then the last thing is it was important for me to tell that story. That's part of the story is that the way you get away with this for so long is that you have an army of lawyers and PR hatchet people who should really know better um, and could probably make a living doing something better with their lives, but who don't. 
and they are, uh, you know, they, they set themselves up in service to wealthy, unscrupulous people. And um, that's, part of the, that's part of the story. And so part of the story I tell in the book is about how Barry Meyer, a reporter from the New York Times, was writing about Purdue and the Sacklers 20 years ago until he wasn't anymore because the company sent their lawyers to the New York Times to get him taken off the story. Or there was a woman um, named Karen White who uh, was, a, was a sales representative who said, they're asking me to do things that I think are not, maybe not legal. Um, and she filed a lawsuit and the company went after her like a ton of bricks. So that was, so I, you know, I, I, I wasn't all that intimidated and uh, to the degree that there was some effort to, um, to make it unpleasant for me, I wanted to incorporate that into the story because I think it's an important aspect of this. So we've got um, lots of questions coming in. I'm going to come to them in a minute, but given that we uh, here in the UK are incredibly embroiled in oligarchs and people who put their name on things, which is now very dodgy. And I know that you and I've talked about this in the past a bit. I mean, how, how many generations do you have to go before you clean money up? I mean, you tell interesting stories about Richard's, the next generation down from Richard. So Arthur's the, the equivalent of the grandchildren of Arthur or the great nieces and nephews uh, who have just accepted the money kind of unquestioning, unquestioningly as their own right. How do you how do you morally square that up? Yeah, I, I should say, I mean, I think this is an area in which reasonable people can differ. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I'll tell you my perception, which is that to answer your question, how many generations? Well, I would say more than one. Um, and I think that uh, I think that there are two factors that are worth thinking about. One is what do you do with the money? And two is what do you say? What do you publicly acknowledge? So one of Rupert Murdoch's sons gave an interview to The New York Times probably a year ago in which he said, he basically said, you know, I'm quite uncomfortable with some of the things my father and our company have done. And he didn't say, so I'm giving up the money or so I'm starting a foundation to counteract all of the fake news that, uh, that Fox News uh, spews into the world. Um, uh, he, he didn't do any of that. He, you know, clearly he's, he's quite happy spending the money, but at least he acknowledged that there were things that gave him some discomfort. And, to date, none of the Sacklers have done that in terms of the, the Mortimer and Raymond families um, who really got very rich on OxyContin. And there are stories I tell in, in the book about some of these third generation people you indicate, and their view is that they're, they're out of it. I mean, there's a, there's a third generation Sackler, one of the children of Dame Teresa Sackler, who is a film financier. He's got a film financing company uh, with offices in Soho Square. And he, this guy, he, he, he gave an interview to The Hollywood Reporter about a year ago in which he basically said, you know, look, I'm just financing films out here. Um, that company, I never worked at the company. I never served on the board. The quote was, it has nothing to do with me. And more recently, ProPublica um, got a big dump of all this tax information. And they revealed that that guy, the, it has nothing to do with me, Sackler, by the time he was 21 years old, he was worth $200 million dollars. And I haven't seen the accounts, but I can tell you that the lion's share of that $200 million would have come from OxyContin, from the sale of OxyContin. So his position is, it has nothing to do with me. If I didn't make the decisions and I'm just a downstream beneficiary of the money, it has nothing to do with me. 
to me, that's not very, that's not very compelling um, as, as a way of just as a purely descriptive way of describing your own role in the story. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, I'm going to come to some of all, many of these great questions, as many as possible. Um, this is a good one from, I don't know if this is this guy's name, Del Latitude, or is that just a funny name? Anyway, at the conclusion of the book, uh, Purdue filed for bankruptcy, which was bizarre given that it was still a cash cow. I'm really interested, therefore, in Patrick's view of if and how the US courts might try to reclaim the huge amounts of money that they hid offshore. So what has been the recent updates of where Purdue now stand in terms of the money they've had to pay out, et cetera? So it's it's an evolving story, but it's um, the uh, the broad contours of the story have been quite clear. Um, you know, at the point, even at the point where I and I've updated the paperback of the book, but even in the hardcover, it was always going to be a case of the Sacklers paying some sum of money, and in exchange, uh, essentially buying um, freedom from any future civil action by the government or any private claimants. And so that's precisely what has happened. The sum of money is is higher now than it was in the beginning because of the way these negotiations have gone on. So the most recent deal that has been hatched is that the Sacklers will pay $6 billion. And in exchange, they will they will be released from any future lawsuits. Um, in theory, they, there could be criminal lawsuits, but any civil lawsuits. Um, and so the $6 billion is is all that... Uh, that people will see now. That's that's obviously um, uh, a fraction of their wealth, um, and importantly, it's also. I mentioned earlier that the gift that the Sacklers gave to the Met was paid out over twenty years. The six billion is paid out. I, I don't know exactly all the ins and outs of it. Originally, the idea was they were going to pay it out over nine years, but there's some parts of it that are going to be paid out over eighteen. And I remember looking at an earlier figure. Originally, they were going to pay four point five, and it was going to be paid out over nine years. And I, I rang up some people who invest private wealth for very wealthy families, and I just asked, so if they have an $11 billion fortune and they're paying out $6 billion or $4.5 billion over nine years, how does that look? If you look at the kind of annualized rate of return um, that they have on their existing fortune, and what these people told me was even just very conservatively looking at the rate of return on an $11 billion fortune, they can pay it out and never touch their principal. They'll be richer when they're done paying than they are when they start. So, um, you know, it's it's a big number, but uh, but when you look at it like that, perhaps it's not. There's quite a lot of questions um, coming in about Dope Sick, which I think a lot of people have seen. And obviously you stick with the Sackler story and don't come into the story of what's happened to the individuals. Um, what, it, what has been the death toll from the opioid crisis? So nobody knows precisely. I mean, it's more, it's, it's more than 600,000. Um, it, tragically, it has gone up since COVID. So last year, 100,000 people died of overdoses in the United States. Um, we really don't know. It's, it's more than 600,000, which is it's pretty astonishing when you think about it. And I should say, just to be extra clear, today, those are largely people dying from heroin and even more so fentanyl from street drugs. But what, what started this was people, the kind of on-ramp for many of these people was prescription drugs like OxyContin. And are there other firms stepping into Purdue's space? I mean, I think that the, um, 
I think that most of the firms have realized that the, uh, at least in this country, um, the opioid business is a pretty fraught business at this point, that the massive overprescribing that drove the boom um, has really slowed down uh, and that the, obviously they look at these various companies, not just Purdue, but other companies as well, that are having to do these big settlements and are realizing that the downside risk of, uh, of opioids is really significant. Of course, you know, now it's, you can't put the genie back in the bottle is the problem. Stephen Rogers asks, um, what, if any, has been the impact of the FDA as a direct result of the OxyContin scandal and their direct or tacit participation in it? Have, have they toughened up rules? No, not really. I mean, I'm afraid not. Um, I, I thought one th thing I thought was really telling was when I was researching my book, I, I did a Freedom of Information Act request with the FDA, and they kind of blew me off, which is what I expected they would do. So I sued them. I got a lawyer to sue them in federal court to force them to turn over thousands of pages of documents to me. And um, the judge ordered them to turn over all these documents. And I said, I want all of Curtis Wright's emails. Mm. That guy who had approved OxyContin and then left to go and work at Purdue. Because I wondered, when did they start having these conversations? Was he still working on the drug? And the FDA came back and said, oh, we're afraid we can't give you any of his communications because they've all been lost or destroyed, um, which I thought was a, a, an indication of um, uh, you know, I don't think this is an agency that's trying really hard to learn from its mistakes. It, little anthropological side note, it's one of the things when you do this kind of reporting that is very strange uh, to me is that there is a kind of, most of the people at the FDA today are not the people who were there in the 1990s, mm -hmm. and yet there's this sort of sense of institutional allegiance that you can't have the FDA. The FDA in, 20, in 2022 can't have the FDA in 1996 look bad. Um, which is strange and frustrating, right? Because it could very well be that the people there today know better. Hmm. Um, the, uh, we've got several questions about, um, you know, people in, in the UK having their names emblazoned, Tate Modern, British Museum, etc., and why it took so long to take down. And then another person has asked here, what are the lessons for the likes of Oxford University and the Blavatnik Schwarzman named buildings? Both are oligarchs. I mean, that's our current problem at the moment. And what do you think people ought to do about it? I mean, I, I know, you know the arguments, we won't have any money for the arts if we don't accept the money from the private sponsors who want to put their names on it. Yeah, I don't, I mean, the, listen, the, 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 um, the very sorry state of public funding for the arts is, is, is a real thing and, and not something we can argue away. Um, but I also don't know that the answer necessarily needs needs to mean a, a craven embrace of um, the most uh, deep-pocketed scoundrels. I think, listen, I, I'm going to be very interested to see what happens, particularly at Oxford and the V&A, vis-a-vis the Sacklers, because they've both been quite adamant that, you know, nothing to apologize for, great relationship with the family, they've been terribly generous, and we're not removing any names. And one of the provisions of this recent deal that the Sacklers made is that they won't be able to bring legal action against anybody who does remove the name. Um, so at this point, if these institutions choose to keep the name, they're really choosing to keep it. And I can see arguments for doing so. I mean, I and I can also see how if you're any, you know, if you're the British Museum or, or <laughs> Oxford, you worry that, well, what if we take the Sackler name down, then they're going to come for Cecil Rhodes and where does it end, right? Um, 
I don't mean to suggest that for the institutions themselves, any of this is easy. I will tell you the thing that has frustrated me as a reporter. Um, doing a lot of interviews, many of them on background with people who work at these types of organizations, uh, it's very often the case that they've known all along and they were just sort of hoping that people wouldn't wake mm -hmm. up to it. And, and that to me, the sort of the hip, it, it's one thing to say, you know, oh, we had no idea, but of course when we found out we made, took X, Y, and Z steps. It's another thing to say, um, as I think Oxford and the VNA seem to be, yes, we know, we know all about the Sacklers and we're fine with it. They're our kind of people. Um, and if you can make the case for that uh, and, and stand by it, then more power to you. I mean, who am I to disagree with you? Um, it's the it's the the middle ground which I think you very often find, which is that people say, "Oh yeah, we privately we all know, they stink. They we thought they they've stunk since the beginning. Our fear was that people that the world would wake up to it, and finally they did. Um, and that just doesn't seem to me to be a particularly healthy or sustainable outlook for any institution. We we will take this filthy money, um, mm -hmm. and just hope that we can that nobody will get wise. Yeah, so the VNA is the one to watch, I think, on that, because they have been very outspoken that they stand by the money and the source of the money. And that they well, yeah, but they also, but, but again, the kind of the head in the sand quality, the guy, I'm blanking on his name, but it's it may be the head of the VNA or the head of the board. There was a guy who gave an interview. Nicholas Coleridge, probably. Yeah, who, I mean, what a joker. He, he, um, he gave an interview in which he sort of said, oh, you know, hasn't really come up. Nobody's raised any problems. Like, we, you know, you're asking about the Sacklers? Like, you know, what, what could possibly have suggested? And the, literally Nan Golden staged a die-in at the VNA. I mean, it wasn't just that there were a few kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a few cross letters um, from frequent visitors that he's, that, he's, uh, that he's choosing to ignore. It's an actual die-in that was covered by the press um, at the point where when you make public comment about your institution, you need to wish away a die-in in your courtyard, uh, I, I think you have more than a PR problem. So just, just to be clear, when they lost this recent case, which said that any institution who's taken their money can remove their name without a legal repercussion, and that's a worldwide situation? Uh, I would, that's interesting. I'd have to look at the fine print. Um, I don't know. Okay, don't well, know. tell me when you find out. So, <laughs> yeah, but I, but I would but I would say that the I mean the British Museum actually strikes me as really significant because on the slippery slope side of things, they kind of have the most to lose, right, or close to it. Um, so the timing of that seems seems yeah. really interesting to me. And in some ways, if there wasn't a, a strong assumption that um, that the kind of prohibition on on legal action. Uh, would extend worldwide. I, I, I kind of doubt that they would have taken the step. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, there's a really interesting question here from someone called Hells, who says, um, first, thank you for writing the book. You're incredibly brave. Do you think that the UK dodged the opioid crisis because we have the NHS, i.e. doctors are not allowed to speak with or be influenced by drug companies marketing in the same way as the US? She does put, I think, in brackets, but I think she's right. It's interesting to me because we could so easily have fallen as a country to OxyContin. Now, we did and do have some level, but nothing in the same comparison. 
I mean, the, I, I guess her question is, was it all marketing? Well, well yes, and, and I mean, I, I, it's one of the really interesting mysteries, right, is why is it, I mean, uh, they, they've done their best to market OxyContin everywhere. Why is it that it hit the U.S.? Um, some of that is just that I think that we have a kind of national tendency to turn everything up to 11, right, in terms of consumption, in terms of marketing, in terms of deregulation. Um, I do think that the NHS system has protections that you don't have here. Um, and so uh, I, I, the, I think that there are probably structural regulatory reasons. Um, but I also think that there is something kind of bizarre in the American culture when it comes to things like drug consumption. Um, and uh, we, we, we tend to do these things in, in more extreme ways. Um, a final question here, which sort of sums up, I think, things about the sack from Sadja Humayun. Apart from their names being taken down and their notoriety and their humiliation, what other consequences have the Sacklers faced? I suppose the, the other question with that is, and I'd really like to know, I mean, how rich are they still? Oh, they're still very, very rich. Um, I, I think the answer to your question would be none. Hmm. I mean, I think that there's a, uh, there, fr from my perspective, um, <laughs> As a writer, there is a poetry in the idea that this family, whose patriarch almost a century ago said, remember, if you lose a fortune, you can always earn another fortune. But if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. Hmm. Um, yeah, it is a poetry. I think there's some poetry in that. But, I, but, but, um, but poetry isn't going to bring anybody back to life. You know, that's cold comfort. I, I, I talk all the time with parents who've lost children. I, that's cold comfort for them. Um, and so I'm afraid that this is a, you know, it, this is one of those stories where the, the bad guys get away with it in the end. And on that note, will the bad guys never go to prison? No, I don't think so. Why not? Never, never say never. But in theory, there, there could be a criminal prosecution. But there is a there is a problem in this country, which is that the um, uh, you know, prosecutors don't really have um, the the resources, they're not going to bring a case unless they know they can win. And I think these are hard cases to win. Yeah, no one ever actually, uh, you go to prison for not paying your council tax, but you can well, kill I mean, that's the thing in this country, you, you go to, if you, if you sell heroin in relatively, you know, in not huge quantities, mm -hmm. twice in many states here, there's a mandatory minimum of 10 years. So the idea that there wouldn't be, um, given the way in which we prosecute some kinds of drug crime, it is quite revealing that you, you wouldn't see uh, any kind of criminal action in another context. Well, on that note, um, I think we'd all like to see one or two of them end up behind bars somewhere. It would feel a, a good bit of justice, but it's a very interesting bit of poetic justice about the name. I think it'll take a lot of generations before even the smallest art institution wants to call itself the Sackler. Uh, the Sackler Gallery. It'll be a, a long time. And most of that's to do with you and your amazing reporting and your completely amazing book, which I, I cannot, cannot recommend too highly. And um, do also read Patrick's book on Ireland because it's also an extraordinary true life story. Um, and it's very moving and very wonderfully written. Both of them are now out in paperback, uh, easily available through Newham Books. And uh, we've just put the link up on the chat. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Thank you for your questions. And above all, thank you, Patrick. It's great to see you again. And, you know, a million congratulations. And, uh, you know, I'm just really glad for all the people who've suffered through this, that they have 
you as their champion having taken on this family and um you know they you've absolutely laid out their dirty laundry for us all to see and um, thank you for that you're a star oh, thank you thanks so I really much. enjoyed talking with you take thank care you for joining us see you